0: Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, We're going to continue our series that we started at the beginning of this month called Future Family. And and this entire series is really um, built around a, a series of questions that we believe can help shift us into a better family dynamic. That this isn't about what your family looks like. It isn't about the awkward family photos that you will one day look back on and say to yourself, we thought that was cool to dress like that. I'm sorry what what were you thinking? Um, This is about the dynamics of the relationships within the family. Um, October 2012 uh, there was kind of a little bit of a firestorm in New York City over a set of keys that were sold. You see Daniel Ferris who had been a locksmith in New Jersey had collected in the midst of his uh, kind of job over the course of decades a series of five keys that he would placed on eBay for $150. These keys were supposedly outdated and were no longer effective. He'd said they were obsolete and thus he could sell them, but what they were were fireman keys. They were the keys that firefighters, first responders used to access elevators that whenever there's an emergency in a high rise, a firefighter has a universal key that he can go in and call an elevator back down to the first floor instantaneously, bypassing all the other floors or holding an elevator, thus trapping anyone who happens to be on the inside. That this key, along with keys that gave them access to the New York transit system, that also had keys that gave them access to the contractor's box, which was on every single building project in New York City, where a fire first responder could walk up, open that box, and inside that box was the key to every, every, every single lock that someone might need to get into a building. And that they were for sale for $150. That these two keys specifically would literally work almost anywhere in some of the most diverse and complex buildings, substructures, or skyscrapers all around the New York City metro area. That there was a little bit of terror that hit when eBay put these keys up. Because people were like, if these keys were real, if they actually work, then imagine if it gets into the hands of the terrorists. Well, a New York Post journalist um, posed as a buyer, purchased the keys and found that, sure enough, these keys actually still worked. That they got them into elevators, it got them into spaces and substructures all around New York City. And even now, the current mayor, who at the time was just a public advocate, um, kind of issued a statement talking about the public security and the, the, the threat, knowing that millions of people's lives were in danger because these keys were being sold on eBay. But the keys have a purpose. You see, as scary and as terrifying as it was to the, to the citizens to think through the process and the implication of what if a terrorist got one of these, it actually serves a purpose that first responders, firefighters needed to be able, it was the very key that got them into buildings that enabled them to operate with public safety. That if a, a fireman, had to run into a building, look through hundreds of keys to figure out which one was the one that was going to unlock this elevator, you can imagine how many lives could be lost. And in many ways, if you're a parent, you probably sometimes feel like a first responder. You feel like you hear a scream and you go running in, not sure if they've lost a limb, or if one of their stuffed animals has lost an eye. You, You can't tell from the scream. It sounds exactly the same. Right, you, you run in, and there are moments in parenting, or even if you're in the midst of a work environment where you're you're responsible in leading a group of employees, that there is this bit of tra- traumatic first responder. What do I do in this situation? Kind of moment when, whether it's you realizing that your coworker has been cheating from the business, or whether it's your child who just cheated on a test and got caught. That there are moments that are diverse, complex, and deeply emotional where we are those first responders to our children or to the people that we lead. And wouldn't it be nice if there was a key or just even a couple of keys that could even make those complex, drastically different circumstances simple, something that could give you a way to unlock anything that you stepped into. You see, and I, I believe that Jesus actually gave one of those kind of keys. That it wasn't up for eBay, but that Jesus gave two golden keys. Two golden keys that allowed his followers who heard him that day, and through, through the written word that we call the book of Matthew, to, for us to be able to respond in a way that gives us an opportunity that no matter what kind of circumstance we find ourselves in, that these keys can give us a way to unlock it, simplify it, and know how to respond in a way that's best. And I recognize that even as I say that sentence, you can be potentially like, I'm not sure. I already don't believe in this God thing, but now you're selling that just like in the same way that there were a couple of keys that could unlock almost any door, substructure, or surface space in New York City that there's a set of keys that could transform any relationship. And if you're one of those people who are in the process and maybe a little bit skeptical, I'd say lean in, prove me wrong. Prove what Jesus says wrong. But I think most of us are going to find that these two keys that Jesus unpacks can have the same impact on our lives and in our lives that those two keys on eBay had in 2012. The words, the teaching that Jesus gives is found in one of his most famous sermons. It's arguably the most famous sermon that has ever been preached in humanity. It's the Sermon on the Mount is what it's been called throughout tradition. It's found in a collection of chapters in the book of Matthew. And Matthew was a letter written by an, a, a, an original 12 disciple, one of those original 12 followers of Jesus who spent time with Jesus and said, I want to I make sure I get an account of what happened, of what Jesus was like, and what it was like being around Jesus. And and his journal of his time with Jesus is what we now call the book of Matthew. That that book of Matthew, the first book in what's been collectively called the New Testament or the Christian Scriptures, that this sermon is in the very kind of early pages of this opening letter from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. And what I want to focus in on is a specific section of Matthew, this this Sermon on the Mount's closing statement. Because Jesus takes this closing statement, and in doing so, makes one of the most profound statements that's ever been made in one of the most profound sermons that have ever been preached. There's, There's a lot of superlatives today, if you're kind of keeping track. That Jesus, in the most famous sermon, utters one of the most famous lines, and I want to read it to you. It's found in Matthew 7. I'm going to start with verse 7 to give us a little bit of backdrop, and I'll finish with verse 12. If you have the Encounter Church app, you can click on Bible, or you can click on the sermon notes, and um, it'll be in both of those places. It's already preloaded. If you um, have a physical Bible, um, then you could flip about two-thirds through it, and you're going to find the book of Matthew, and you just turn accordingly to that. And if you would like a physical Bible, we actually have a few even sitting in the door So as you leave today. Um, we can give you one, and it would just, it's a free gift because we believe that there's hope found in it. And so um, Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If then you... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This famous last line where he says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. That, that last line where he says, this sums up the law and the prophets, for those people in the oral tradition, like the original audience, they would have heard that last line and recognized that that's how he started the message. And for them would have been a trigger to know, okay, this is called an inclusio, if you like knowing things like that, that this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, because this is exactly how he started it. In oral traditions, that's how they would do it. to communicate to the listeners, I'm finished. Because all of you including myself, have been in rooms where people are talking and you have one question. When are they going to be done? Right? And this was a way of doing that. Of saying, I'm finished. I'm wrapping this thing up. But Jesus says, look, I, this entire, the entire thing that you call the law and the prophets. So there were 613 different laws and commands that a Jewish man and woman was suspect, were, were expected to know. 613. And Jesus says, let me give you one that sums them all up. Do to others... What you wish they would do to you. And we call that today, it's it's known as the golden rule. The reason it's called the golden rule, according to tradition, is that Emperor Alexander Severus actually wrote this verse on his wall in gold. And that the idea of it being written in gold stuck and it became known as the golden rule. That there is another way that's oftentimes referred to as the silver rule. And the golden rule is completely different from the silver rule. The silver rule, we've probably heard before, the silver rule goes like this. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want done to you. You see, what Jesus calls his followers to was not the silver rule. Every world religion, every world religion has the silver rule. But what Jesus does that day, while it's very common to us now, was completely radical in what he says. In establishing the golden rule, he implemented this radical new standard. In fact, the first key that I think you have to begin to wrap your mind around if we were going to transform the relational dynamics in our life is we need to start taking the golden approach, not the silver approach. That by taking the golden approach, it can fundamentally shift the way we see and interact with individuals. Let me give you the difference. See, the silver rule was defined by its passivity. To to keep the silver rule, The one that says, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you, just meant you had to do nothing. That's a really easy rule to keep, right? Don't stab them because you don't want to be stabbed. And most of us, even if we didn't grow up in a religious context, maybe even heard this um, as it's called an ethics and secular humanistic kind of thinking. It's called the rule of reciprocity. That, oh, well, this is just basically built into the human fiber. Of being, and, and you will hear um, people like Sam Harris sometime, um, who's a famous atheistic thinker, and they will group the golden rule in with the silver rule, and it's not the same thing. Jesus is the first religious teacher ever to give us the golden rule. Because there is something fundamentally different about the silver rule and the, the golden rule. One's defined by passivity, the other one's defined by activity. Don't do to others is completely different then do for others what you wish that they would do for you. It's, on the surface it sounds similar, it's very similar to Mark Twain's quote, right, that the the power of words, that there's the lightning bug and the lightning, and which one would you rather be struck by? Right, that lightning bugs only a three-letter difference, and on the surface they seem to have a lot in common, but the substance of them can be life-changing, right? One is just kind of a ooh moment, and the other one is a I'm dead moment, right? And Jesus does the same thing. He says that the mark, this golden approach, is defined by activity, this deliberateness, this intentionality, and that this intentionality of looking at life With the filter of the golden approach that says it will be I should define my relationships by what I'm willing to do for them that I would like for them to do to me instead of this passive, I won't do what I don't want done, can transform things. Tomorrow we celebrate and the, the whole world will focus on us because of the marathon. And what's interesting about the marathon and even marathon running historically is that it's only been a little over 100 years that the three-hour mark was passed. You see, prior to that, this idea of the three-hour marathon was this kind of unaccomplishable human feat. Run, run a full marathon in, in three hours? That's insane. I mean, at the time, you could barely drive a car or a mechanical device that far in three hours. And yet, in 1908, Johnny Hayes, breaks the three-hour rule and becomes the official world record at the time of two hours and 55 minutes and 18 seconds, to be exact. Then he shatters the record. And in 1908's Olympics, it's like, this is incredible. And yet today, the world record, currently as it stands, is two hours, two minutes, and 57 seconds. Now, there is an elusive two-hour barrier. Now, it's tempting to look at what's happened in the history of marathon running in the same way that you could look at a, a vastly different kind of, whether it's sports or academics, and say, well, it's just because people are being fed better, that humans have gotten stronger, the access, all those things. But when you, when you drill down into any of these fields where there's been drastic improvements, the difference has not been in better food or some kind of new research. The difference, according to one of the the foremost leading experts in how do you actually get better, um, says that it's the key to understanding why there's been that much difference in such a short time is this idea of intentionality or deliberate practice. You see, prior to this breakthrough, there hadn't been a lot of system or thought around the power of deliberateness and intentionality. A lot, of the, a lot of it was reflected by passivity. If you happened to be fast, and you had a genetic predisposition to run, then that's why you could run fast. But you were limited by your genetic makeup. That someone like me was never gonna run a marathon. because goes, I don't have a genetic predisposition. Predisp- yeah, I can't even say the word because my brain's like, you ain't never running a marathon. I mean, last year I took a picture of me crossing the Boston Marathon finish line on, on Sunday because I knew that the only time a picture will ever be taken of me crossing the finish line at the Boston Marathon will be one stage the day before. Right? But this idea that, that's happened in the last hundred years that intentionality can transform and go beyond the power of genetics has been revolutionary. From the ability to memorize a long series of numbers, to marathon runners, to all of these crazy, crazy, drastic, even the world record for memorizing pie. All of it has seen drastic improvement because of a deliberate, active intentionality. And that's what Jesus is saying, that look, when you step into a context and you're no longer defined by the passiveness, but you realize that you have the power to practice, that you have a power called your choice and intentionality to step in to relationships, It can transform them. That imagine you walked in to your job tomorrow, not with the silver lens, but with the golden lens approach to say, what could I do for them that I would wish someone could do for me? What kind of transformation could happen in your your marriage, with your children, if you operated out of the golden rule? I mean, that lens transforms everything. Instead of you being defined by passivity, you step into your child's brokenheartedness or to your spouse's struggle or to that new intern's trying to adapt to the pace that you call normal. But you stepped in with the golden approach instead. If you've ever had that happen to you, someone who wasn't just passive, but they were active and intentional and stepping in your life, you know it can transform you. It can bring hope in the midst of chaos. But I recognize that it's not just taking the golden approach, that because this is in some ways so profound and so ethereal and so big, that boiling it down to everyday actionable life can be a little tricky. So what I want to do is give you something that isn't just about taking the golden approach. It forces it into your life. It's a question. Five words, actually. A five-worded question that I believe will give you the power to take the golden approach into any area of your life. That these five words, okay, let me give you one more superlative, that these five words can transform any relationship that you're finding yourself in right now. Whether it's with coworkers, whether it's with your kids, or with your spouse. I call it making the golden ask. So if there's a golden approach, there's also a golden ask. Are you ready? You ready for this question? It's this. You got your, ready? How can I help you? How can I help you? Five words. Now, I recognize that some of you are like, I've just written him off. That is the simplest question ever. That's not going to make a difference. Maybe even you're disappointed because you really thought you were going to get something that was good. But here's the thing. If you lean into that question, it is transformational. What if this week your boss had sat down in front of you and instead of giving you something to do, he asked how could he help you? What if your spouse this week, instead of complaining about all the things that you haven't done, sat down and said, how can I help you? Or what if with your child, in the midst of their first kind of heartbreak or breakdown, with a letter home from school, instead of you getting angry and bringing the hammer down, You sat down and looked at them in their eyes and said, how can I help you? That a question that simple can transform relationships. Because what it does is it takes the golden approach and it filters it through a lens that gives you an insight from their perspective. Edward Land, who went on to found the company Polaroid, when he was on vacation with his three-year-old, he was taking a picture of her. And his three-year-old looked up to Daddy, and she said, when can we see those pictures? And he said, it's going to take a while, because this is 1940. And she says, Dad, why do we have to wait for the picture? And Edward Land, in response to that question, sets himself on a mission that invents what we now know, what was revolutionary at the time, the Polaroid camera. This question, why why do we have to wait for a picture? See, all of a sudden he stepped out of all the expertise he had, and he looked through the lens of his three year old little girl that couldn't understand. If we have the power to take a picture, why can't we have the power to make a picture? And that what this question does of how can I help you, gives us an approach that sees us gives us an ability to see through the filter of someone else's personality, perspective, and even their preference. Because here's the danger if you just take the golden approach and you apply it unilaterally without thinking about it. Well, then everything is still about you. Do to others what you want them to do for you. Well, what I'd really like is, I'd really like just some time at the spa. Have some downtime. Relax. If my wife ever walked into the room and said, Honey, I have booked you two hours at the spa with facials. Nails, manicure, massage, I've done that because I love you. I'd be like, you can take that thing back. I don't want anybody touching me. I don't want anything on my face. Don't be, I got my nails under control. I don't need help. But what happens is if we just take the golden approach and we filter it through what we want, then we start doing things that we want people to do for us. But the problem is, is that's not how people are. You are unique just like they are. They have their own preferences. They have their own personality types. If you're married to an extrovert and you're an introvert, and the idea of what's good for you is just time alone, and you try to give that to your extroverted spouse, then you're you're not going to recharge them. You're going to deplete them. Because the idea of sitting all by themselves, alone, is prison. That's not filling them up. And so when you sit down and you ask the question or you process through the question, how can I help them? Or how can I help you? Then it gives you an ability to see their different personality types. Without oversimplifying them drastically, there are four different personality types. Okay? If you, especially if you ascribe to some of the kind of general psychological teaching today with disk um, profile is one of those that kind of, kind of quantify it this way. So let me give you the animals because the animals are really helpful. There are four types of animals. Lions. These are the dominant, task-oriented, get-things-done, hard-charging personality types. There are the otters, which are the fun, live-life, people-oriented, loves parties, love big crowds. Then you've got the golden retrievers, which are people-oriented, but a little bit slower-paced, tend to like smaller crowds, kind of less demanding environments. And then you've got the Cs, which are the task-oriented, but they're the detailed task-oriented people. right? They're fundamentally different from the the Ds, the lions, who like tasks but don't want details. And you can even see how people break down into their career paths. I will never be an accountant because I would destroy any organization that I was in charge of accounting. I don't do details well, but I am so grateful for people who do. My wife is a detailed person. And so for us to have an interaction, I can't say, oh, we'll figure out vacation. We got three months. Oh, it's only six months away. It'll work out. It'll work out does not work with detail people because they want to know how will it work out. Do you have a schedule for what it working out will look like? Do you have a location for which this working will occur? And I'm like, nah, not price line. Name your own price. We'll figure it out. That's going to be fun. And it's not fun. It's stressful. But when you have this question of how can I help you, So practically in our kitchen, we have a calendar right beside our refrigerator. And that calendar is not there because of me. It's there because of my wife. Because she likes dates. She likes details. She wants to know my rhythm and where I'm going to be and where I'm not going to be there and where I'm going to be when I am there and what is there. And so that she has a better handle on my schedule so that we can work together more effectively. And that was born out of, that calendar was born out of me saying, how can I help you? And me realizing that the way I was doing it was not working. That it's not just even personalities, you can dig in a little bit, and it's even in pre- preferences. A couple, about, I guess about a month ago, um, kind of talked a little bit about the five love languages, which really can transform a relationship. And the five love languages and this approach, it just, it just serves the golden ask. That there are right, words of affirmation, people who they receive love by you saying complimentary things to them. There are quality time. People just need to be with each other, physical touch, right? And that's just, that's like generic. That's not specific because some of you are like, oh yeah, that's my love language. And it's, it's a general thing, right? It's, there's the gifts and there's acts of service, like do something for me. Now, the challenge is that most of us are not in relationships with people who have the same kind of love languages as we do. And this isn't just relational, romantic. Your children have love languages. They receive love a certain way. And the challenge that many of you, that even some of you can face, you say, I connect with one child, but with one, I just, I struggle. It's like we're operating on different planes and it's this combination of their personality and then even how how they receive love. That if if you're a physical touch person, then the idea of snuggling on a couch, them kind of bumped up against you watching a movie, man, you feel loved. But if they're not a physical touch kid, they're, they're like, I don't, they don't feel loved in that. Now they may do it, but that's not how they're, they're it may be quality time for them. So even going back to my wife, um, we were traveling a little bit last week and we spent hours in the car together. And later, one of those evenings that we'd been driving for four hours that day, she's like, I just feel like we haven't, you know, spent time together today. I was like, oh, we have four hours in the car you know, but I mean, we just—I didn't feel like we, you know, connected. And and to her, like credit, I mean, there probably of the four hours, there was probably at least 30 to 45 minutes where she might have thought she was about to die um, through the process. Um, but a lot of that's reflective of our differences. I'm not a quality time person. Like you rub the back of my head and you tell me I did a good job, I'm set for the rest of the week. I'm good. My wife, it's time quality time, us sitting there talking. Because it's time and talk. That's hers. It's not, she squeezed my hand and said, hey, you did a great job today and I'm good. I'm going to roll on for three more days without even like talking to her again because that, my love tank's full. But we get into this with our relationships, with our kids. I'm, I'm having to ask this question all the time. With my four-year-old daughter because she's starting her little personality and her preferences are starting to mold and, and they're not like mine and there are times I have to take a step back and I'm like I don't know what to do I don't know what to do when emotions erupt over what I think are silly things because my personality and preference is like you suck it up you keep pressing on well telling a little four-year-old girl get over it keep pressing on doesn't seem to work ever Or maybe what some of you heard growing up. You're crying, I'll give you something to cry about. Like, that doesn't help, but this question, how can I help you, gives us a filter to process their preferences, their personalities, and how they've been uniquely wired by God. And in doing so, deepen the relationship that we're having. Um, Even just practically where this looks is, I walked up on stage earlier with this thing stuck to my head. Now, maybe you didn't see it, but none of you said, asked this question, how can I help him, by telling him he had a ridiculous sticker stuck to his forehead. But I'm so grateful that the people who were running the camera and the, operating our, the team that operates like our online presence came walking up to me in the interim and said, you've got a sticker on your head. I'm like, man, I appreciate that. That's like what I'm talking about. Not passive, well, glad I'm not him with a sticker stuck to his head. <laughs> Like, thanks, guys, right? It's, uh, what can I do to help him because he looks ridiculous right now with a sticker stuck to his head. Um, we, even, we don't just ask this even in our co-work environments with our kids or even with our spouse. We believe as a church that we should ask this. That this is what guides a lot of the decisions we make of what can we do to make a difference in our town. How can we help? And there's a, an event coming up um, next weekend that's one of those unique events that our town does called the James Joyce Ramble. It's served as in the past and is the the national 10K championship run, which is a lot smaller than a marathon, but still way too large for me. But I'm not going to run it. But when we asked the town, how can we help? They said, you know what? We need volunteers on Saturday for a couple hours. Or Sunday, I know that you guys have church. So what if there were a few people who were available before or after church just to help us set up? Because Thousands of people all around America come to this national 10 race to be part of it because it's a big deal. And I would encourage you. Maybe you've never served in a community event. Maybe you've never stepped in. But this would be, those op- this would be an opportunity. It's real, real kind of low-level entry. You don't have to know a lot. You just have to be able to do a little bit. And it might be an hour. It may be two hours. Maybe three at the max. But it would just be a little a way that you or maybe you and your family could kind of step in and help the community as a whole. And in the app, you can access that through the community events tab. You click on that, and it'll show you every role, that, every, every role and responsibility that they've asked us to help with. And it's Saturday or Sunday. Um, but I think that most of the time we're afraid to ask this question if we're being honest because we don't want to hear the answer. Right? How can I help sounds really good when it's coming to you. How can I help can feel overwhelming when someone's asking it from you. I need your help. We're afraid they might ask. Or if they've asked, like, I mean, your teenager, if you have a teenager, you're like, my, my teenager will never ask me this question because they know if they ask me this question, I'm going to pull out a list that I've been waiting my entire life for them to ask and say, here are the 16 things that correspond to the 16 years of life that you've lived so far that you could help me. Or maybe you're afraid to ask your spouse that because you know all the things that they're going to ask you to do. And you say, well, how do, I, how do I shift this attitude to a place where I can live life, not just being the recipient of this question, but being the asker of this question? And when the secret Jesus actually points to right before, right? He says, which of you, when he starts, he referenced back to how parents in and, and the crowd parented their child. He says, look, we're all, we're all broken. We all have We all have moments in parenting that are not our proudest moments. We all have parenting moments where, or moments with coworkers or in dating relationships where we don't want those moments caught on video and broadcast on YouTube because we're ashamed of those moments and we're frustrated by those moments or the way we, instead of responding in kindness, we got angry and just lashed out. And Jesus is like, look, there's evil in how we parent he says, but if you still do good, even in the midst of your brokenness and the evilness, he's like, how much more does your father in heaven know how to operate in his perfection, how to respond to give good gifts? What Jesus does is Jesus is like, look, if you want to understand how to even go about channeling the the energy that's required to ask this question, you have to take your cue from what God has done for you. That what God has done for you is that when we were helpless, he stepped in to help. When we felt unloved, when we were operating in a lifestyle completely in rebellion to what he's called us to, that he still stepped in and loved. That in our helplessness, he helped. Here's what I found in life that's pretty common, is that helped people want to help people. People who are loved and secure in that love find it easier to love people because they don't need something from them. When I find that I I am processing and operating out of how God has loved me, how God has rescued me, how God has desired, wanted me in his family, even when there are so many days that I am completely, by my actions, saying the exact opposite of what he's trying to do in my life. That when I take my cue on what to do from what he's done for me, it's easier for me to step into the lives of others around me and do it for them. Because helped people want to help people and loved people want to love people and Jesus is saying take your cue from what, he, from what he's done for you. That that's the key. That's the key to operating and living out, not just taking the golden approach, but making the golden ask. Because here's the deal one day, your children, one day, your coworkers, somewhere distant in the future, is going to be in a moment. And in that moment, they're going to take their cue on what to do from what you did to them or what you didn't. Them. That one day my four year old will probably be a 40 year old and will be doing things in parenting and in life that will be taken, that cue will be taken from what she saw me do. Because in family dynamics, in relational dynamics in work and at home, we either repeat what we have seen or we replace it with something new. And for many of us, the repeat is the default. And if they're taking their cue on what to do from you, isn't it worth you asking, how can I help?